not see this coming and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And today we're going to do something a little different. I have brought back on a repeat guest, my friend, Sarah. Sarah, can you say hello? Hello. And I'll let Sarah introduce herself a little bit, but uh, I've I get asked questions about myself quite a bit from the podcast and people are wanting to know when I'm going to do an update on where I'm at. And I think we did, Sarah did our interview, an update, gosh, was it two years ago, Sarah? Almost, yeah. I think it's been about two years since Sarah interviewed me and wanted to see where I was at at the time. And so now we're going to do another follow-up episode. And these episodes always make me a little uncomfortable. It's great to talk about other people, but harder to talk about yourself and the subject material. So Sarah, tell us about yourself. Um, hey folks, I'm Sarah Burlingame. Uh, I live here in the Equality State in Wyoming. I am, uh, what I always say, an adopted member of the Mormon feminist tribe. I'm not LDS. I didn't grow up LDS, but I grew up LDS adjacent. So I grew up in the Jello Belt, the Intermountain West. And I came to Mormon feminism through Feminist Mormon Housewives, where I've been a permanent blogger, a member of the board of FMH. Worked on a number of projects, and I've been friends and uh, sparring partners with Lindsay Hanson Park here for, oh golly, how long? A decade? A decade. Yeah, about a decade, yeah. So I've been an avid listener of um, the year of polygamy, and maybe a good place to start is that in the early good old bad days, um, Lindsay and I both had small children at home. And then we would, you know, call each other on the phone and would work through, like, sometimes for hours, like, where Lindsay was at with polygamy, what her perspective was, where she saw this going. From that day to this, there have been these really seismic shifts in Lindsay's approach as someone who stepped into her role as a public historian, the feedback that she's gotten and the new work that she's been doing. And I think it's always a good thing to um, take uh, steps to be more transparent and let uh, you, you know, her, her, her listeners, um, some of you who've been following along on this journey the entire time, give you the opportunity to see what's been guiding some of those choices, uh, what's worked, what hasn't worked, that's a great thing about podcasting, right? Like you have this opportunity to not just have this finished product, but really take a journey with somebody. So I hope that's what we get to do tonight. Yeah. And Sarah, I appreciate you always being willing to do this. Like I said, Sarah is someone that I come to all the time because she's one of my friends. It's been important to me in the last decade as I've really branched out and built meaningful friendships with women in my life to part of those friendships are to have women who hold me accountable. And if I do something wrong, you know, come and call me to correction and, um, and do it with grace and without shame. And Sarah's one of those people and, and, and friends like that are friends that you can trust because then you know that they're going to tell you 
if, if they see you making a misstep. So I, I thought it would be good to have Sarah to come on. We're going to talk about some of the critiques that I've had. Let's talk about the shifts and kind of just where I'm at because, of you know, I do try to stay neutral in my interview style. However, I also think it's really important to be honest about your biases. So that's what we're going to do today. All right. So Lindsay's going to sip on her jumbo diet Coke, as is her want. And I'm going to quaff back my Pellegrino water, as is my bougie Wyoming way. And we're going to get into it. Are you ready, Linz? I think I'm ready. Let's do this. All right. So let's start at the beginning. And for folks who maybe are new to your polygamy or have just, you know, maybe listened sporadically, um, let's talk about where you started. Let's talk about your impetus for beginning the podcast and where you believed that you were headed then. Yeah, that's a good question. And that's probably the question I get the most often when I do public speaking engagements. So the question is always like, so how did you get into the, why, why this subject? <laughs> um, so first off, I'm not a polygamist. I've never been a polygamist. I did not grow up in polygamy. But that's the subtext, right? Like when they say it, they're really asking. Like, I think it's impolite to say, are you a little bit polygamist? Were you polygamous (laughs) curious? Like, that is the reason for asking that question, right? Yeah. And I think there's a similar thing. Like, I remember when I first told my LDS bishop that I didn't like the some of the LDS positions on homosexuality. I thought that they were unfair and cruel. He was like, oh, so do you have a family member that's gay? And I was like, not that I know of, but can it be enough that I just think that it's wrong? And I think it's the same thing. I don't know if it's human nature or just, you know, this Western Mormon way of thinking that I must care because I must be a polygamist, but nope, never been a polygamist. However, I do have connections to it. So I, um, LDS, of course, polygamy is in our history, as we've talked about. And it really, really bothered me when I, when I first met Sarah, I had just found out that Joseph Smith was a polygamist and started blogging. I was so angry and it, and I wasn't angry that Joseph was a polygamist. I was angry that I didn't know that he was a polygamist. Right. And I think that you considered yourself someone who like you went to seminary, you went you know, what were you, Laurel's president or something? Like, Well, here's the funny thing. It, so in Utah, in the school that I went to, we had seminary that you could take during high school. And you could actually letter in seminary. Um, like you could letter in a sport. <laughs> so I lettered in seminary. I have my CTR letter that you could stitch onto your jacket. Yeah, I mean, I grew up... I grew up reading Mormon history. I loved it. There was a time in college when I got really hyper religious and I only read, I only read religious books. I only read Mormon books. And so, um, and, and again, I, I think that I've told this story a lot of times, but my mom is also a public historian and she, she dresses up as a pioneer and she's got like, you know, this historically accurate 
outfit that she wears and then she would dress up uh, us up as pioneers and we would go to youth conferences and relief societies and libraries and schools and and teach pioneer history. Um, of course, it was a very specific type of pioneer history. It was very Kate Carter, Daughters of the Utah Pioneers, usually faith-promoting, always like a good twist at the end. Um, you know, the formulaic story of like pioneer has challenge, pioneer suffers, pioneer overcomes. And I actually, I mean, although those stories are kind of whitewashed, I really still draw strength from like that heritage and that like pattern of like adversity brings you a challenge and then you overcome with this sort of pioneer spirit. Um, so I thought I knew, but it, it was, it was almost like those stories and all of that knowledge in my mind, I'm picturing it like uh, it's just an army of information. And that moment that I find Joseph Smith is a polygamist. It's almost like that whole army of information reaches down on the ground and picks up a weapon and points mm -hmm. it at me. It felt like everything had turned and I didn't know anything. And how could I not know something like this? And, and the problem is for so many people, it's not the history that bothers a lot of Mormons who go through a faith crisis. It's the response to them finding out about it that becomes a problem. So, of course, you know, I try to talk to people about it in my Mormon family and and uh, ward, and everyone was like, that didn't happen, or you're crazy, or you're wicked, or stay away from it. And so I was just angry, and then I started blogging. Right, but let's talk about that response, right? Because very clearly in the beginning, you took some patterns from your own life of like, look, this is something that has given me anger, has given me shame, and I know how to detoxify it. I know how to, like, leech, you know, the shame or the anger or, you know, the betrayal that I'm feeling out of it. I just need to confront it. You know, the old Mr. Rogers, you know, if it's mentionable, it's manageable. And so you began the podcast with a very clear promise it sounds like a really strong word but i'm gonna say it like so the promise to to folks who wanted to mainly women who wanted to follow along on this journey that you would be able to take away the shame and the betrayal and the confusion around polygamy because instead of avoiding it you would confront it head-on you would look at it you would learn the stories of the women you would you would dig into the theology and see what was there and what wasn't there. Cause I mean, man, what, what is, I mean, there's a lot of cultural baggage around polygamy, right? And that's where you started, right? So um, I've been quite public about the fact that in high school and in college, I developed a really severe eating disorder. And at the time, I didn't know anything about it. My friends and family, we didn't know anything about it. I mean, the context that I had was that I was wicked and vain and I was choosing to be wicked. I, I even confessed to my bishop that I was sinning. So it wasn't until I got into some treatment that I realized that this whole attitude of not knowing anything about the eating disorder really contributed to the eating disorder. And then this, you know, I felt so much shame and my family was kind of ashamed of it. So we kind of tried to hide it and we didn't want to advertise that I had this issue. And I just felt so much shame and that just compounded the eating disorder. And so once I got into treatment, I realized, oh, that is killing me, this avoidance, this trying yes. to pretend everything is perfect. I mean, it literally almost killed me. And so I learned that lesson very early on, very deep down, that you, 
that we do do not ignore things. We call things to the surface. And I've, I've learned to do that with a little bit more grace over time, um, as my friends know. <laughs> Uh, the the word I think that um, we would choose to ascribe uh, besides grace would be compulsivity. Like being friends with Lindsay is like understanding that she is compulsive about naming things. And sometimes you have to say, oh, maybe now's not the time. <laughs> yeah, we'll be sitting there with friends. And I know that two friends are upset with each other. And I'm like, are we going to talk about this? And both of my friends look at me like, are you serious? Not now. Not now, Park. Not now. Yeah. Um, right. So, so it started with this promise that was very well uh, established and had been successful in your life of like taking away shame by mentioning it. But h- how many months in was it before you had a a, a, a come correct on that? Well, yeah, so anyone that goes back and listens to the, all the episodes in order, like you're supposed to, to episode one, you know, I'm very like, hey, it's going to be hard, but we're going to get through this together. And I, you know, I still fundamentally believe that that was the right course. However, I was unprepared for the information I was going to uncover, right? And so... And again, I should note that none of this information that I have put on the podcast, very few, very few things in the early history I discovered on my own. I mean, I was just building on the backs of so many good Mormon historians and researchers. I, I have brought a lot of the modern stuff well, to light. Name, name the stuff that we know. No, like so whose research? Like Todd Compton? Oh, Todd Compton started off the journey for me because he was one of the first people to highlight these women that were married to Joseph Smith. I mean, his work is foundational to understanding Mormon polygamy. I think that the Mormon world owes so much to Todd Compton for his research. And, you know, there's others like, like Jill Durr and Kathleen Flake and um, Val and Val Avery Tippett's and all the, you know, everyone that wrote Mormon Enigma and gosh, there's Mike Quinn I could go on and on. There are so many. Connell O'Donovan. So we'll link we'll link those in the Yeah, well and we have. I've been I've linked those and so all of that was helpful. But then I get into the Utah period. So I thought I knew a lot about Mormon history, but then when I got into the Utah period and the Mormon Reformation, and I do want to give a shout out to Joe Geisner um for bringing some great articles to light for that. It was shocking to me to learn the history there. And I think that I talk about this. I It's around episode, gosh, 41 or 42. And at, up until this point, um, it's not like I, I didn't like polygamy. I wasn't a huge fan of it. But I also knew in my feminist theory that like if a woman chooses it, then I have to be okay with a woman's choice. And here we have like Emmeline Wells and Eliza Snow and uh, Martha Hughes Cannon, and they're they're writing these beautiful, articulate essays, fighting for the rights of women, and they're advocating for plural marriage. And so I was like, well, you know, I have to accept their choice. But around those episodes, I start reading their diaries, right? And especially Martha Hughes Cannon's diaries, where here's a woman who who became the first female senator in the United States. I mean, she was a doctor. She Such started a hospitals. Badass. 
amazing. Like, and she she was a huge pro polygamy advocate. And but then I read her diaries to see how her heart was continually broken by yeah. the practice, and it just sort of. Do you have that line memorized? The one from her diary about how she sees him. What is it like riding in the carriage or something? It's yeah. so good. Yeah, the, the, it's the line that I will never forget. She says. How do you think I feel when I see you out in the carriage with her? And and I think I just think of that like the emotions in those wor- words. How do you think I feel? Um and that line, how do you think I feel? That is that line I think sums up the sacrifice of mm-hmm. this principle, right? Like yeah. your feelings, you know, are less important than than uh, the principle. And so, yeah, that just kind of shook me. And it feels like ever since this podcast, I've been going, you know, you think that you get grounded in, well, now we at least can know this or assume this, and then something else will come to light. And and so I've just kind of learned as a practice that I'm never going to uh, be sure that I know something about this again. I'm always going to be open that it can change Mm. because it does change. Yeah, I mean... The lesson is the binary is not our friend, right? Like you went into it saying, look, we'll find out if it's good or if it's bad. And using a very Mormon sort of, you know, rubric of, you know, uh, we don't have to be afraid of the truth. If, If there is something good in it, then it will out. But what happens when we find out that there's something complicated in it and there's there's not easy heroes and easy villains but yeah. it gets really messy. I mean, that is that has been the biggest takeaway is to realize there's no such thing as a good person or a bad person. I mean, whenever I publicly speak, one thing I say all the time, and I this is what I've learned from the podcast in whole, and the one thing that I do think that I can grab onto, I fundamentally do not believe that most people, the majority of humans at six or seven years old, you know, sitting, eating their dinner, looks up and thinks, I want to be a bad guy when I grow up. I want to be a villain. I want to hurt people. I just, I don't think that that is human nature. Now in Mormonism, it's interesting because we have a discourse that the natural man is an enemy to God. And depending on interpretation, some people believe that men are born in a sin, you know, like men and women are sinners and they're far away from God and they have to get closer to God. I think this podcast has made me shift and realize actually it's opposite. I think people are just born neutral or, you know, leaning on wanting to do good and uh, life gets in the way of that. Yeah, I like the way you cut it off at six or seven, though, Lindsay. Like at eight, <laughs> at that's eight, that's <laughs> when you start making the decisions. At eight, that's when you're accountable. No, I I think that that's the that's the hard part, though, because now I mean, the work that I do with modern polygamists. I mean, I've met criminals. I met people who've done actually terrible, terrible things. Terrible. And yeah, and, and what what do I do with that? Because they've also done really great things and which one rules out the day. So are they a good person? Are they a bad person? And where I kind of, where I'm at right now and I reserve the right to change my mind. If you know, I learn more along the way. I think that people are both that everybody is both. Um, People make good choices that do the add good to the world and they make bad choices that add bad to the world. And the rest Mm -hmm. of the time they're bored and 
trying to get their needs met. Bored and trying to get their needs met. That's my house band. Um, so let's go back. Uh, like from the outside looking in, I would say that um, in that first year, there was a lot of turmoil, you know, within you because you were figuring out your own relationship to the church and you were really shifting gears in terms of this podcast and this work is still good work worth doing. But my initial like hypothesis about where it would lead me, I, I'm, I'm not down for anymore. Right. Yeah. I mean, I really, I really think that it was that sort of Mormon side of me that I not only had faith in Mormonism, but had faith in my Mormon people. Like, okay, guys, we're going to fix this. We're going to solve yeah. this one. And to realize just how deeply woven it is into our DNA, into our history, into our theology, to realize that it's, I don't even know. I don't, I don't want to say it's not fixable, but I think that that's just even the wrong perspective. It's, it's not a problem to be solved so much as it's a problem to be investigated. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, investigated, engaged. And um, yeah, it's that lack of engagement that leads to sloppy, easy answers, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that especially as LDS people, I tell this to fundamentalists all the time, you have to understand that from an LDS perspective, especially from an LDS women's perspective, my whole life, my entire life was, I was raised and groomed and taught to how I was going to someday please my husband, how I was going to be a good wife, how I was going to be a good cook, how I was going to be a good homemaker, how my body was for my family. It wasn't my own. And so I have that that in one sense. And then in the other sense, I'm taught polygamy is weird and gross and all the, you know, crazy fundamentalists do it. And we don't do that anymore because it's wicked, but it's going to be in heaven. Right. We don't do that anymore. It is wicked beyond wicked in this dispensation. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, you're going to have to live it someday. And so there are these, all these like weird I call this like this weird toxic soup in the LDS woman's brain of how do you make sense of this at all and so I think most of us think all right I either have to accept it and just accept that you know God's going to change my mind in heaven and I was unable to do that so I took the other route the binary route which is it is terrible and we need to get rid of it and we need to say it's evil and um that's really the position that I started out with the podcast, that it's evil. And I think that that's a really popular response. I think that's why the podcast took off, because I was giving voice to many LDS women's pain saying, this stuff is wrong and weird and gross, and we, you know, let's get rid of it. Yeah, and we should be able to name it, right? So, um, But now, okay, let's shift a little bit and say your role starts to change a little bit because the podcast really took off. And so tell me a little bit about how you perceived your role changing from a, um, you know, sassy FMH blogger to public historian. Yeah. Well, you have to understand, I mean, I, I, I could go on and why I've, my life has ended up where it is, but 
the basic gist of it is when I got married, I was very sick. I had a terrible eating disorder. I lost an art scholarship because I was unable to function. Marriage to me was all of a sudden, it was the first thing that I had done right in a long time. I felt like such a failure. You know, I flunked out of my classes. I was sinning in my mind, being vain, you know, very unhealthy, couldn't hide it. When you have an eating disorder, at some point, people start to notice, right? It's because it's in your body. And so the the minute I had an opportunity to marry, I took it. And for the first time in a long time, it was like, not, oh, poor Lindsay, she's, you know, sick and unwell. It was, oh, Lindsay's making good choices. And, and so that's what I did. And I just threw myself into this Mormon woman role. And, and, you know, being confronted with this issue of polygamy and having to share my husband was deeply painful. So when I started this podcast, I really was just a stay-at-home mom with young babies on my hip, no academic training whatsoever at all, and feeling just a lot of, like you said, like a lot of angst and a lot of passion and determination. But I didn't know what I was doing. And it's actually embarrassing to me to kind of leave those first episodes up. I think they're super boring. I think I didn't know how to tell a story. Um, and I think that when a lot of people start a podcast, they're just like, oh, yeah, I can do this. And that's definitely right. what I did. That's the, I, I don't know if you've read that. We'll, we'll link it too. But there's this great Ira Glass um, talk, you know, Ira Glass, who does this American Life, and just says basically anyone who wants to do anything artistic or, you know, that they're passionate about, that they really have to give up on that idea of coming out of the gate and being their ideal, you know? I think there's a lot of power in that and that you were able to say, like, you weren't holding yourself out as someone who had all the answers, but you were holding yourself out as someone who had the right to ask the questions. And that was a very powerful moment for Mormon feminism. I think, and so... On the one hand, I very much felt, and this is absolutely true, that I was in my pajamas in my basement talking to a few friends, honestly. Like, I didn't, I I remember the first podcast I ever did, like, 400 people listened to. I was like, 400, that's so many people. Um, And now it's, you know, we get 100,000 downloads every single month. And I'm talking to strangers and things like that. I still can't wrap my head around it. But I think you're right. I think what has always driven me and what will continue to drive me is I do have the right to do this. You know, throughout the course of the podcast, some critics have said like, oh, you know, she doesn't have the right to say this. Uh, She's not a classically trained historian. And I maintain my right to ask these questions. I've never held myself up as, you know, a classically trained historian. And some of the best Mormon historians that are out there are actually not, you know, academic, classically trained historians. And so that has... Who, who are you speaking Oh, about? like Jonathan Stapley. I mean, he's not... He He's in the sciences. Uh, Todd Compton is not a classically trained historian. Mike Quinn is... He's one of the few that pr- produces Mormon history that is a historian. So, um, I think some of the best work out there is artists, per se. Yeah. So, so that's that's the thing. I mean, I never came to this as as the expert. People call me the expert now. I try to stay away from that label because I do think it's important to distinguish expertise versus you know just somebody on a microphone. 
Um, but I, because of my experiences and my engagement with these communities and my like constant integration with this topic, I do tend to know a lot. And so I, I remember the first time I was on the news and they put a polygamy expert. <laughs> and I, my first thought was, oh, my parents are going to be mortified. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't know. So I've, I've been driven by that. But I, you also have to understand, I really did see myself like so many of those early episodes. My little baby daughter was sitting on my lap. You know, like I was nursing her, rocking her to sleep. And that was kind of how us bloggers saw ourselves, right? We were feminist Mormon housewives in in the truest sense. A a tiny little cabal, nothing like the audience that you have today. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, I I guess it was that approach. So with with your um, podcast getting more views, more downloads, more interaction, that led to people wanting to know what gave you the right, right? Yeah. And it, it jumped from being you in your basement with a couple dozen of us, you know, listening because we have to because we're your friends to a wider audience. So talk to me about some of those early lessons in adjustments that you had to make in response to either just feedback or outright criticisms that you received. Well, so I maintain that throughout the podcast, I really do think that my history is solid. And I credit that to using solid sources. So I didn't know a lot about academic history, but I knew enough at the time to know. I mean, I didn't even know how to cite things properly. But what I did know is that it was important in Mormon studies to go with faithful sources and not just go with critical sources. And so right out the gate, I I knew to do that. I knew to get a wide variety of sources to back it up with secondary sources. And that was more a result of not like academic integrity, but more arguing online with my Mormon friends who were like, it's not good enough. If Todd Compton says it, I want it straight out of Joseph Smith's mouth. And so that was a good practice that, you know, really made me dogged in in my sourcing and my research. But I think what I didn't anticipate was um, I've had very little criticism on the history except for from a few female academics. It's never been male academics. It's been female academics who were kind of like, wait a minute you don't get to do this. You are not a historian. How dare you think that you can do this? And um, where do you think that comes from? I mean, I don't know. I think it's scarcity politics, right? I think uh, women who work really hard that go and, you know, get their PhD in history to see some stay at home mom in her pajamas having such, you know, huge success on a history podcast thinking where, where does she get the right? She didn't put in the effort. Now, I see my effort as put in just in a way different way. I mean, again, I suffered and I struggled in school. My relationship with academia is super complicated because of my disease and and because of things like that. And my own personal experience with history and Mormon history, I mean, it's I've just learned that you can't really say who has the right to, to do whatever, you yeah. know? I, I hear what you're saying, Lindsay, and that like, look, you know, uh, this is this is an issue that isn't as much about religion as it is about gender. 
you know, women who have worked really hard to obtain like higher degrees are going to be um, a little bit of gatekeepers for that. But I wonder also if there isn't a part of it that to me speaks of being uniquely Mormon in that I remember when ordained women, you know, came around part of the intensity of the anxiety about it from many faithful Mormon women who genuinely would have been delighted to have had the priesthood themselves was just that there's only one shot. And if somebody goes about it the wrong way, then it will drag the rest of us down. And that that's something that actually is pretty baked in to this iteration of Mormon feminism. You know, that there is not a robust theory of change and that that scarcity is not just about academia, but it's also about opportunity. Does that seem right to you? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that that's a generous reading because I, I don't, I don't even know that the intentions of people who have criticized me in that regard is necessarily to bring, bring me down. And maybe it is, but I, I also think that, you know, some of the biggest critics on my quote unquote professionalism have also been women. So I have been criticized for the way that I talk for pronouncing words incorrectly for my accent for I'm going to go on record as saying like that's some of the most serious bullshit. Yeah. Like, I don't have any patience for that. Well, and you know, I chew gum and I flip my hair and I'm a ditz and you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it reeks of femaleness. <laughs> well, that, that's just it. I mean, it's, it's funny because I was just at this podcast summit that was really great. They asked me to speak at this podcast summit with all these other podcasters and, you know, people were talking about how they market things and how they get their podcast to be successful. And I really am lucky. I mean, I fell into it. It was organic. It was word of mouth. We didn't market it. You know, I think it was, but I, but what I think some of my critics didn't realize, or maybe they did, all of those things that they were criticizing me for is what people enjoyed about the podcast. I mean, the fact that I'm not, you know, a pretentious academic elite that can only talk, you know, in sort of these boring academic words. <laughs> I can't even articulate it. I think that that appeals to people. And sure. hearing my process appeals to people. And I think the fact that I was just a very average Mormon woman spoke to very average Mormon people. Well, let's go back to that about how uh, uniquely, maybe even compulsively, open you are about your process. That was one of the things that I think that early on, like set you apart as you moved out of the like early days, we're going to explore this together, really hit like the full angst of like, oof, this might be really bad guys. Like if this doesn't challenge your faith, I don't know what to tell you. You and I walked out of the cop, the church office building uh, one time when I had a, a meeting there and a woman had come out to talk to you to say, hey, you know, I listened to Year of Polygamy and my friends who are in a ward together on the East Coast, they also listen to it. And then we get together and we talk. Like, that was the point, I think, where you were starting to see that there was a broader conversation that was being had that, and that you felt a certain responsibility to this audience. So talk to me a little bit about 
what you felt like your responsibility was to them and like how you were going to come through on that. Yeah. So we can talk more about the incident in a minute because I, I think that was kind of important for me, but I, one of the main reasons I started the podcast is I resented that we didn't know the women's stories, the women's names, the women's perspective on this topic and yet, like I said, with this this critical part of my life with this eating disorder that almost killed me, um, one of the things that I learned early on when, it, when I would talk about it, and I had to talk about it because if I didn't talk about it, that was part of the pathology of my disease. Like the more that I hit it, the worse it got. So talking about it really helped in my recovery. It helped a lot. It helped in my survival. But when I would talk about it online, people would say, oh, you're so brave. You're so brave. Yeah. And I think they meant that as a compliment, but I took that as a, a critique. I took that as, oh, you're so brave to say something like that. I would never say that because that's shameful or embarrassing. And I learned early on, I had to just be comfortable with all the parts of me because I knew why I made the choices I did, and I knew that I couldn't control some of the compulsions I had, and to to do anything else would be a constant apology for my existence. And as a Mormon woman, I already feel like I'm constantly apologizing for my existence. Going through a faith crisis and having these questions, you go around your family and you're like, I'm so sorry that I'm questioning. I'm so sorry I'm changing. I'm so sorry I'm different. And yeah. then, you know, just struggling with the issues that I've had, you know, in my community and my friends and my family and old friends. I'm so sorry that I've done this. I'm so sorry that I'm different. And I just, with this topic, I had to employ those values. I could not pretend any that, that I was any different than I was, that I knew any more that I did, that I had more answers than I did, especially because as we got into the modern part of the podcast, we are talking to people who are alive, who are living polygamy now, and this is their lives. Who am I to go in and say, actually... I'm, you know, this Mormon woman podcaster, uh, let me tell you how your life is for you. I just, it's so out of line with my values. And so, yes, I am compulsively honest and compulsively vulnerable, but I have to be, I mean, as a way of survival, that is to me, it's sort of this Brene Brown thing, but it's being vulnerable is my greatest strength and it served me well over and over. And you know what? I'm one of those people that when I'm wrong, you calling me out and saying I'm wrong is not the worst thing you can do for me. That's helpful, right? And I don't yeah. mind being wrong. I reserve the right to make mistakes. That's part of my survival too. I mean, perfectionism almost killed me. So I try to, I try to be as honest as I can. And when I'm wrong, I'm going to say I'm wrong. You brought us into, you know, the, that's the great leap, leap forward in my mind was when it stopped being strictly historical and it came into polygamy as it has lived in the present day. And am I right in saying that, like, that's where you really had to not just, like, lean on your past understanding, but really develop new theories of advocacy to start forming relationships with folks who are committed to, to their polygamist families and communities and teasing out some nuance in that. So so tell us how that happened. 
I mean, that's such a complicated process, but hopefully people that have followed the podcast from the beginning can understand because, you know, that's one of the critiques I'll hear from time to time. Women will say, I really like the first hundred episodes. The second, you know, hundred are fine, but, you know, it's a little bit too pro polygamy for me. And I mean, I don't see myself as pro polygamy at all. I've never once, never once advocated for plural marriage. Not once. But that is to say, I can't condemn it anymore like I used to. And I think that that comes with meeting people and meeting where they're at. It's one thing to read about polygamy in a book. It's one thing to read about it in the histories. It's one thing to hear on a podcast. It is another thing entirely to build relationships with people who are living it. And then to have to sit there at their dinner table and explain to them why you know their life better than they do. I mean, it's... it's, I'm not capable of that. And, and so some people I think will poo poo my sort of strategy now and say, Oh, well, that's okay. She's just really friends with polygamists now. It's more than that, though. What I've learned is it's not about protecting my friends and like apologizing for my polygamous friends. Now, what it is, is it's shown me that polygamy is not one thing. It's not the one thing that I thought it was when I started out in the history books. That is part of it. It doesn't nullify any of that. That's part of it, too. And this is part of, you know, this this modern polygamy. There are some good things to plural families, and I can't deny that. And Sarah, you're the one that taught me that years ago. I, I remember I was going through some sort of crisis. I don't even remember what it was. And you you taught me that little trick and that I've used for years and years, which is it's a yes and, not an either or, right? And so that's what I do. It's uh, polygamy is bad and terrible and it and can be abusive. And it is also bringing joy to a lot of people. It's brought so many happy families together. It can be a beautiful, cohesive system. And what are you supposed to do with those things? Yeah. Uh, So you said, you know, it's brought joy to a lot of people. And there is a boundary, right? There is a limit. You don't have the same perspective about plural marriage as you do female genital mutilation, right? Right. Like you draw the line in a different place. So tell me how you, because I I don't want to say this as a static, like how you, Lindsay Henson Park, have arrived at now, you know, the end point of how you are going to engage polygamy and those living it. Because I don't think you're at the end point, right? Like it's it's an open process. But I, I wonder if you could share like, how you how you held yourself accountable to a standard and how you how you shifted your own sort of early understanding of okay i'm going to put people living polygamy kind of off in this like their own little box over here and start like engaging them as real people like where did you draw those lines It reminds me of you, and maybe we can talk about your story first. So you've never been Mormon. uh, You grew up Baha'i. And so you come and you start hanging out with Mormons and blogging about Mormon issues. And it's funny to see their responses over the years, right? Because most people just assume you're Mormon because you're so literate in Mormonism. And yet when they find out... (laughs) And when you find out, when they find out that you're not, it's like, oh, well, she doesn't have a right to be speaking about this. But what I've seen, and we can talk about this, like, just as an example, when 
you know, our friend Kate Kelly was excommunicated from ordained women. You are meeting with church PR and some of us are like, why would anyone meet with the person that excommunicated our friend? Yeah. So talk about why you had the flexibility maybe to do that in ways that I couldn't. Well, one, I mean, it was my job, you know, I was working for the human rights campaign and, um, I was working as a faith organizer and they had hired me really because it's really difficult to find queer people who like, or certainly love Mormons after Prop 8. So it was a very niche job opportunity for me. And with the resistance that I was having here in Wyoming, uh, a friend in California said, well, you know, they need permission from the top. So you need to go and talk to folks at the top. And I shared uh, what I think was the um, widely held belief that uh, they were not going to open the door for me. Why would they? A non-Mormon, you know, queer Wyoming woman. uh, What's the draw? Uh, But instead I found that they were very eager to talk. And I think that's what, what you're speaking to now. That led to like some hard conversations with some of my Mormon feminist friends who could see that like, why do you get to walk through that door and I don't? Because I did have a profile. I did and I do have a profile in ordained women. Um, I am a supporter of many things that they support. But as a Gentile, you know, as a a non-Mormon, I'm held to a wholly different standard. And so they could meet with me even while they would not meet with some of my, uh, you know, sisters who are in the faith. And... I hope that where we arrived was an understanding that our advocacy needs to be an ecosystem and that there are some doors that I won't be able to walk through and there are some doors that another woman won't be able to walk through. And rather than saying all of our advocacy needs to be streamlined and and only, you know, look at one front, like LGBTQ advocacy, if we were to say, look, business and invoking, you know, capitalist uh, values, this is where we're going to win our independence. This is where we're going to win civil rights. We just need to hit the business angle hard. We need to forget about the faith advocacy. We need to forget about talking to people about the gospel or whether their churches are a sanctuary or a refuge for people who need them. We need to only hit it on one this one angle. I think that the the data is in that that is ineffective. That's not good. And um, it just, it just doesn't work. So it doesn't really matter whether we, we think it's the ideal or not. It doesn't work. Um, So I think what you're saying is that there were some doors that you could walk through because you were not raised in plural marriage. You were raised with it as a specter of your eternal reward slash (laughs) uh, punishment, but you were not raised um, in the same way. And, but that brought questions, right, Lindsay? Like that brought up questions of who are you to be having this conversation and how are you going to determine when you've overstepped, when you are creating harm 
And I, I think this is the conversation, Lynn, about normalizing something that is doing damage. Yeah, this is this is something that I've been grappling with. So as I've come to see the complexity in this topic, see the complexity in people's stories and in their lives, I realized with sort of horror th- that this idea, especially, you know, dealing with the FLDS specifically, I realized that this idea of saying polygamy is bad, period, at the end of the sentence, and that's all there is, that exact attitude to damage. And and I think I've talked about this before, but years ago, um, before I started blogging or anything, I read a book called Half the Sky, and in it they talk about the mass rape in in Congo and the DRC. And there's just like a chapter on it, and it's horrible, and it talks about why they're in this conflict. And, and I was horrified and incensed and knew I had to do something about it. So I organized with a friend, uh, a group called Utah for Congo, and we started doing 5Ks to raise money for post-rape survivors in Congo. We're raising all this money and we're feeling really good. And we have all these pictures of these like African women with their babies and they're sitting in the dirt and it's like, help these poor women. And then I was given a book on the history of Congo. It's called King Leopold's Ghost. And I would recommend that to anyone. And it's about how Congo got in the situation it was in. And it really, Congo was this fine place to be until, you know, all of these Europeans decided that they needed to help these poor black Africans. So these women formed these societies where they would help the poor black African, never even going to Congo. And what that did is open the door for colonization and uh, missionary work that led to enslavement and torture and all this stuff. And so anyway, so I'm horrified to realize that I think I'm helping people by being this little white lady over in Utah, helping this these poor black Africans and realizing it's that same attitude that got them in the situation to begin with. And so I had that in my toolkit already, but I had that sort of moment with polygamy because I just thought it was understood that polygamy was bad. It was a bad thing. But as I realized the complexity of the situation and as I realized someone like Warren Jeffs used that stigma of polygamy being bad to gain power. I mean, if you are being abused by someone in your family and you're in the FLDS, you didn't feel like you could go to the police because you worried that your whole family would go to jail. And whether that is true or not, Warren absolutely used that stigma. He used the isolation, the fact that outsiders judged his group to Mm -hmm. keep control of the group. And so once I realized I had been part of that problem, that stigma, I was, it was one of those Utah for Congo moments, like, oh no, I've done it again. I've done it again. And I've really tried to course correct. Now, of course, in doing so, I have a lot of anti-polygamy advocates who are upset with me and they're saying, why would you, you know, why would you normalize this? And, and to that, I would say there is a huge difference. It's huge. It's subtle, but it, it, but it is big if you actually look at it between normalizing something and humanizing something. And I think for me, my process, the work that I do, if we want to stop abuse, if we want to stop coercion, if we want to stop all of these harmful systems of oppression, you don't do it by, what's the Audre Lorde quote I always quote? You can't dismantle the master's house by using the master's tools. Yeah, you cannot dismantle the master's house using the master's tools. And that's what I was doing with this approach. If you go into a plural family and you say, your dad is a criminal, your moms are criminals, 
how do you think that changes hearts and minds? You know what I mean? Does that does that engage a relationship of trust where someone can open up about their abuse? No, it doesn't. It doesn't change hearts and minds. Now, however, like we talked about earlier, this is a door that I can walk through because I am not a victim of polygamy. I've never lived it. I've never had to suffer under it. And so that gives me flexibility to do things that I think some women who have lived it, they are victims and they are entitled to their perspective. And I have never tried to dismantle that perspective. In fact, there I have plenty of friends that are anti-polygamy ag- advocates. And if I know someone that supports our position, I will you know, funnel volunteers to them or resources, because I think that that is an important position for people to take. There are people that live in, in these communities where plural marriage has burned them so deeply and they need a place to go. And -hmm. I would never begrudge that. I just don't think it's my place to say that I have no right. I have no right as an outsider to say polygamy is harmful um, or polygamy is good. I, I just... That would be irresponsible of me. So you say it will be irresponsible, but what's your metric? You said that you have accountability. Like where, where's your accountability? So that's a really good question. And it's something, as you know, it's probably the thing that's kept me up at night the most because, you know, Misha would call what I do. um, What does she call it? Radical, radical inclusion. One of the ways that I have decided to organize is radical inclusion because I fundamentally believe that if you get people of different belief systems in the same room, they can actually work out their own problems. Like They don't need yeah. someone to always save them. Misha is different. My friend Misha is very different. She has uh, different boundaries and she I would not. Dr. McGriggs to you. Yeah. she's the, Our friend Misha McGriggs is a, a doctor of psychology. Psychology. Um, at Columbia University. And she would say, like, I don't have time to work with criminals or people who have broken laws. Like, that's not where I'm going to do my work. But that is what I've chosen to do, because I think that that is work that needs to be done. I mean, I I fundamentally believe, like I said, that people do not want to be bad guys. And I've also learned that you cannot, if we still go with this system of this, this narrative that there are good good people and bad people, we are creating more victims because what we are, what we are doing. Yeah. Lindsay, I think that you have articulated that really well, but I really do want to go back to like, what is your system for accountability? Like, how do you know when you've overstepped? Who, who are you? Who are you responsible to? Like, what does that look like in... Not in the like ideology, but in the day to day and the practical. I don't know. Like, I honestly, um, all I know that the best thing that I can do to protect myself against that is humility. The the option that I could be wrong. Well, and who are you? Who are you um, receiving feedback from? That is in the community. Like, if I, I would, I would go out on a limb here and say a very easy metric. I think for you to name would be you would be actively disinvited from the community. Yeah. So that hasn't happened. I mean, I I think the main driver that I listen to are the communities who are asking for the help. I've let what them. What kind of feedback are they giving you? This is the feedback. I mean, this is where I've learned how to do the work this way. The feedback that I learned very early on was if you come at my family, if you come at 
criticizing my family, we're not going to listen to you. Like, we'll be nice to you. We'll be kind to you. You can even have dinner with us. But like you, your words don't have a lot of weight here. Mm-hmm. And so that has been really instructive to me. And like I said, I learned early on that I don't go in to rescue someone. I'm not in about changing someone's like, I'm not going to go tell them that my life is somehow better than theirs. So I, I let them lead the way. And, so, and I think that that's why I'm so successful. I don't know of anyone. Well, that's not true. I know of very few people that have access to these communities that I do. But on the other side of that, you know, the other side of the accountability are people will say, you know, I heard the other day someone was telling uh, someone prominent in Mormon studies that I'm in the back pocket of the FLDS. And I was like, what does that even mean? What does that mean? Do they do they sew pockets on their skirts now? I, I didn't know that they did that. Um Yeah, it's just funny because people, I think they see me engaging these communities and they see they see my engagement as some sort of acceptance or agreement or promise that I've made that I'm signing off on a, you know, on a lifestyle. And to me, I just think that's lazy thinking. Right. But I th- I can see how it happens, right? You know, if you see a picture of a politician standing with, you know, some neo-Nazi, we're all going to be up in arms. But a lot of people see that when I'm down, you know, talking to these fundamentalist leaders, they're saying, you're talking to this villain. You're talking to this bad guy. Why are you doing that? And I've honestly, Sarah, I've had to question, oh, no, am, am I doing damage? Am I signing off on someone who's done a lot of harm to people? So let's talk about that. What... In, in hindsight, where do you see a mistake in your advocacy? Where have you had to like course correct or eat crow or like commit to drawing the line in a different place? And I'm, I'm asking this open-ended, like I really don't know. I, I know. I think that one thing that I have learned is because I was so harmed by black and white thinking, because I've worked so hard to you know, bring the thing out in the open. I'm compulsive about it. It's almost made me so empathetic and so open-minded that the accountability piece sort of fell off the plate. And so, I mean, I've said this, like I could probably empathize with Hitler if he were in the room with me because I would be like, oh, you were abused as a child. That's really sad. And then, so I started to realize like that is an overcorrection too. Let's there and go back. Let's be super clear. You do not see the ability to empathize with Hitler as uh, a value that you want to expand on, correct? Right. No, I see that as a okay. huge flaw. Like that, okay. that it was a huge overcorrection that, um, because like I said, so this idea that I don't believe anyone is a bad person and they, you know, no one wants to be a bad guy. What do you do when you've met someone like Warren Jeffs who have done so, like so many unspeakable things? And I found myself like in my quest to help and to help solve this problem and to understand empathizing to the point of no accountability. And I, I don't think I ever got there, but I saw myself on that path. So I really appreciated the criticism that came in to help me course correct there because for me, it's it's really great for me to say, oh, you know, uh, I don't want abuse. I don't like coercion. But then to sign off and someone's abuser, right? And, That's right. And, That's and, right. And so I had to, that is one of the mistakes that I made. Even though I never signed off on the abuse, I didn't fully anticipate the optics 
of of me engaging abusers, what that would do yeah. to the victims. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think that was probably shocking to a lot of people. Like, what do you mean you didn't? How how was that not job one? Right. Well, and again, I'm driven by I, I I'm driven by the same things that I was before. I don't want abuse. I don't want coercion. I don't want you know this patriarchal oppression. And I, but I. So what I did is I knew that calling it out and saying polygamy is wrong or bad that was the wrong approach. I knew that that was ineffective, and so I think I did that binary thing, which was we hop on to the other side, and you. Neither of those are complete, right? Um, That's right. And so, so the the model that I'm trying to go off now is I've sort of envisioned a little triangle for myself, um, and picture a triangle with three equal sides, and one of them is empathy, and one of them, you know, is accountability, and the other one is like just plain up like knowledge and training and education. Those three have to be completely in balance with each other for me to feel like I'm doing an ethical responsibility. So as much empathy as I will employ, I need to make sure that I'm employing as much accountability. And that comes up a lot because there are some things that I love my fundamentalist friends. I love, I, I, they've enriched my life so much, but some of them adhere to harmful things like racist doctrines. And that's where I've drawn the line. That's one of them that I will just not apologize for or empathize with racist theology. I feel like I've done enough work on that in Mormonism to understand. I've done the empathy part to understand where that comes from. And we don't have enough of the accountability piece, I think, in Mormonism. And so that's the line I'm going to hold. I, I think racism is a great one to name. And I think what the, the citizens of Utah themselves kind of came up with as their, these are lines that we don't want crossed. And for them, it was three things, right? It was underage marriages. Uh-huh. And it was fraud so, and... Child and abuse. What was the... Any um, abuse that came out of, you know, polygamy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so w- would you, would you agree with those three? I, Absolutely. I'm, I guess I'm wondering if like the fraud part is, um, when we try to understand those systems, like if you try to understand fraud, it's complicated with the narratives that fundamentalists are taught. But again, that's, that's my process, right? So absolutely fraud is wrong, right? However, if we want to stop fraud, why don't we understand why it's occurring in the first place? And that's where the empathy and education piece comes in. But the accountability piece has to be sure. there. It has to be. And, I, I, you know, I've really followed models of restorative justice because one of the things I've learned, too, is in some fundamentalist communities, not all, but in some, you're dealing with these victims, right? These victims that come out and they've been horribly abused. And then you find out that they have also perpetrated abuse on someone else. So a lot of these victims are also perpetrators. And that has been the latest knot that I've had to untangle this last year. What am I supposed to do with that, right? It sort of breaks up this hero-villain narrative again. I think that they're a victim and they need help. But then when you look into it, they either you know were a perpetrator of abuse or they assisted in it or they knew about it and did, did nothing. And so what does that mean? And I think restorative justice has been the model that I have decided to go with just so I can feel like I'm acting in integrity with the work that I do. 
That makes sense to me. But I think the thing that's also starting to clarify just in this conversation is that that's why there is such a deep need for articulated boundaries and accountability. And I think like watching you do this work, I think what I'm seeing is a lot of that you do intuitively, like that's what you're oriented towards, but for other people to get on board and for other people to understand it and to feel confident that they're not participating in something that is going to normalize abuse or coercion is to just really have those boundaries named. Does that feel right to you? Yeah, and and I think that that's that's probably important and I think it's it's difficult because I do have fundamentalists all the time on my show. And so I think what some listeners, especially those who followed the podcast because they hated polygamy, want me to say is they want me to confront the individual and say, but tell me polygamy is wrong. But at least tell me polygamy is wrong. I, that's, that's a line that I can't draw because, again, right. I, I fundamentally believe that that contributes to the problem, not the solution. I see what you did there? That's a solid pun using fundamentally. <laughs> I think I've overused that word a lot today. <laughs> um, so, again, here's, here's the thing, though, Sarah. This is the thing that still keeps me up at night. I still could be wrong. This could be the wrong approach. It could be. Um, How will you know? Like, what, what will that look like to you if you have, you know, hitched your wagon to this form of advocacy in the firm belief that you are doing something that creates more liberation, more openness, more accountability, and that you have just been fundamentally flawed in your approach and that all along you should have held the line at a very different place. What, what would that look like to you? I don't know. I think it would look like, you know, no, no positive change occurring. And maybe, maybe that's too. What does positive change look like for you? So I'll, I'll just give you an example. If I was the same Lindsay from 20 years ago, then I think we would have a problem. But I, I also believe people make mistakes in the context of what they're raised in. I think if you're a fundamentalist man and you did some bad things or you're a fundamentalist woman and you did some bad things, chances are you thought you were doing the right thing. Chances are you thought you were doing what God wanted and what was the moral thing to do. There, so there have been times when I have brought people from way, you know, radically different backgrounds together Uh you know, I brought a fundamentalist leader and he had to see, you know, who has grown up propagating racist doctrines and homophobic doctrines. And he um, had to have a conversation with our black Mormon woman keynote speaker and our queer Latino activists, you know, who confronted him on LGBT issues. And I was really worried it was going to be this tense thing, but so many beautiful things came out of that conversation. And a year later, after we had had this conference where we had this diversity there, I ran into a fundamentalist man who had been at the conference. And when I saw him, I thought, oh, no, there's there's this guy. And I remember he was there when we were talking about all the LGBT stuff, and he was really uncomfortable. And he came up to me as a man. He has two plural wives. And he just said, I want to thank you for letting me come to that conference. You have radically changed me on LGBT issues. And I said, what? Just hearing a fundamentalist man say LGBT, first of all, and not use some derogatory slang. And he said, 
It really challenged me. I spent the last year researching about it, and I've come to realize I'm wrong, and I found out that one of my children is LGBT. And so to me, that's what success looks like. Again, it's I've only been doing this work for five years, so who knows? But I could tell you so many stories like that uh, yeah. where people are learning and expanding and growing. Now, it's not as simple as saying, like, you know, put these polygamist men in jail and then we'll solve the problem. But uh, I do think that my goal in integrating people is letting them, you know, meeting them where they're at and then, you know, bringing them along in a process of understanding. And that has happened to me too, and which I consider to be a success. It's broken up my binary thinking, my biases, my judgment, um, this idea that I have to like rescue somebody from something when my own life is not superior to anyone else's. Yeah. I don't know if I shared this with you, but um, we had put together an ad hoc faith community uh, a committee rather just to address something that was happening in the legislature in Wyoming. And uh, it was to address something really pressing. So we just, you know, gathered all the folks who we could, who were supporters, put them in this um, committee and didn't really, weren't terribly thoughtful about it. But then after the fact, we had to say, okay, like let's um, draw up some standards and boundaries here. And the, the pressing question was, should we add people to our LGBT faith committee who were members of churches who did not have doctrines that affirmed the full worth and dignity of LGBT folks? And so I took it to the, the two members of the faith committee who were queer themselves. You know, one minister who's a man in Laramie and one minister who's a woman in Casper and said, I, I think, you know, the decision should lie with you. You know, we can add folks who are our allies and supporters from the Catholic Church and from the AME Church, the historically black church. Um, they would be willing to join us. But where do you want to set the standard? There are other faith communities or committees that they could be part of that are not explicitly for LGBT advocacy. And I, I'm going to leave it with you. And both of them independently came to the conclusion and used almost identical language to say, we want them with us. We believe that their hearts are, are there, their churches aren't. And we believe that the spirit can work better when we're all in the same room together than if we're sitting across a football field from each other. And I, I felt really, really honored that they were willing to take that risk and to place that faith, you know, in one another. But I also understand that it's equally valid for folks to say, no, I'm sorry. I've been too hurt by those practices by by those doctrines and I need a space where that is absent from I think that's so well put and I think that that is how I've tried to engage this and like I said I'm sure I'm certain that I've made mistakes especially you know you asked about mistakes I'm another one's coming to me uh, one of the other ones that I don't think that I gave enough attention to at the beginning was the responsibility I had when sharing other people's stories. 
So, you know, I would ask someone who had just left a fundamentalist group and say, hey, like, come on the podcast. And and they would say, OK. And, and I and I would think that I was being responsible by saying, yeah, and it's going to go on the Internet and people are going to hear it. But what I didn't realize is that sometimes for some people telling their stories can re-traumatize them. And right. I, I just didn't know anything about that. And so now I do. And I, you know, I have a different process, but I've, I've made so many mistakes and I'm so grateful for the grace that people have given me to do that. But I have to pay that forward and I have to pay it forward to other advocates out there who also make mistakes or people who are just coming to terms. I, I, you know, people will say, talk to Lindsay now. She's the expert on this topic. By no means, you know, I'm the expert in the things that I know and that I've experienced, but that's going to be a different story than someone who has lived it in some other group with some other prophet in some little community that I've never ever heard of, right? Like they're the expert in their experience. And my information doesn't get to negate theirs and vice versa. Well, let's speak a little bit to that. There are people doing uh, work like what you do, because, right, it's not just the podcast. It's the Fern Foundation. It's the, you know, doing um, hands on the ground advocacy work, you know, in these communities. And there are people who do very similar work, but with a wholly different lens. And I'm speaking specifically of folks who come out of polygamy themselves, and they put the line in a very different place. For them, what you are doing is really dangerous, and they have a lot of fear and disappointment and disapproval that your style of advocacy is going to take away accountability, and it is going to normalize a practice that they find deeply harmful and that they have been personally hurt by. What do you think about their advocacy? And I mean, I guess specifically that they want criminalization and um, that's where they draw the line. So um, that's something that I've thought a lot about because I think that their experiences should carry weight. I mean, these are people that lived it. They know we, we can talk about studies, we can talk about research, we can talk about all of that. But when you live something, there are a hundred different ways that you know that it affects you that you can never articulate, right? You'll never be able to explain to people. And I honor that. And I think that that is absolutely true. And I'm actually very grateful that there are people that take those positions. Because I do think that that all of these approaches are needed in an issue so complicated, so enmeshed like polygamy, and that's a system. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not just something that you like, like the LDS, (laughs) this is what I know, like the LDS church, we tried to do that, right? We tried to get rid of it and take it away and look what happened. Um, You have to have multiple approaches. And I'm so grateful that people are doing work all across the spectrum. I'm grateful for those who, who are working with plural families, who take them in, who, who strengthened them on the, that side. And then, you know, the people who are there for people who have been harmed by it. All I can do is support that. I, I don't see us in conflict. I think that there, I think that there is a tendency and may, and I don't mean this to be offensive. I'm just speaking for my own personal experience. When I've been wounded by things, particularly in Mormonism, my Mormon programming needs validation. Mormons are, are people who need permission. We need validation 
And so when I, you know, am struggling with something that has caused me pain in the church and I hear a faithful Orthodox member dismiss it or say it's great, it's actually very upsetting and triggering. And one of the practices that I try to help ex-Mormons do in their recovery is you need to be okay that you're owning your experience and that's enough, like that you don't need someone else to sign off on it. And again, I couldn't sign off on the approach that polygamy is right or wrong or good or bad because I haven't lived it. So I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to, because I've talked to as many polygamists or people who have left that say it's harmful. I've talked to an equal or greater amount of people that say, you guys have got it wrong. I love this. This is a blessing in my life. And we, you know, I think it's really dismissive to be like, well, they're just being coerced or they're being, you know, blackmailed into saying that. I know what it's like to have my own beliefs dismissed. Um, and so I'm, no, I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. That's just not my role. My role is something else. And so I acknowledge that I have some privileges with my role on the outsider to sort of dance around in these communities. That said, that doesn't mean that I get off the hook if I cause harm. So I think it's a good thing that, that there's some tension there that people, you know, are raising those questions. It keeps me accountable. And I think that it's hard to have critics. It's hard to have people check your game every single step of the way. But it keeps you honest. So you don't believe, like, you're not a proselytizer for everybody needs to get on board this ship. You think you need a lot of different ships in the harbor. A hundred percent. And in fact, I think it would be dangerous to say there is like one true way, right? That's the one thing that I've learned from this podcast is there's no one true way of anything. Uh, people are complex. Issues are complicated. Systems are complicated. Uh, I And that's just... That's the lesson that I've learned, and that's where I'm at right now. Maybe as I get older and wiser, I'll, you know, I'll come to it and realize I've been misguided. But where I'm at right now and what I've seen and the goals that I have, which are just compassion and understanding, access to resources, education, and accountability, my approach is the best fit that I, that I see. It's the most effective strategy that I've seen, the feedback that I'm hearing from the majority of people that I work with in these communities. This is the approach that they are asking for, and, and I'm seeing the results of that. So the, I'm going where the data is. Yeah, I mean, amen to having data-informed strategies. Okay, final question, Lindsay. Like, where do you see this going? Like, what's best case scenario? Where has this podcast led you? Um, what 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 would next steps look like? One of the one of the successful things that I didn't anticipate with the podcast, but I'm really proud of, is that it's brought a large amount of awareness to this issue. Right, a huge amount, like. Just the just the impact that I have had and my group has had in um, relationships with people in Short Creek and the positive impacts that I've been able to be a part of, that has forever, that will be enough for me. I mean, the way that we've been able to work with the town and help help them and assist them, walk with them in turning the town around, I'll always be grateful for that. As far as where we go in the future, I'm not certain. I just know that I think in so many ways, the podcast is still very personal. I advocate for this approach. I advocate for the, I guess, the 
choice for people to be messy because I'm messy. And I, I think in, when I'm asking other people to look at the messiness and hold these conflicting things together, what I'm sort of doing is asking permission for myself to be able to do the same thing. And so I think that's kind of the kind of my strategy. I don't know where we'll be in the future. I know I'm not going to do this forever. You know, I've already said it's called year of polygamy. Um, I will not go past 365 episodes. <laughs> so we're not even close to that, but I don't know. Um, what number What number are we at right now? We're like at 150 something. We're, okay. Yeah, that's a lot of polygamy episodes, but it's, it's crazy to me because the following keeps growing and growing and growing. Um, so something is really speaking to people in, in these episodes. I think time will tell what that is. All I can say is what it's doing for me. And, and that's what it is, is the more that I accept the messiness in life and others, the more I'm able to do it in myself. And that's helping with my own healing and growth and my own self-compassion and I, I mean, I hope that's what people are getting out of it, but it's too early to tell. And see, I think there are people who would say, people who have uh, their heads uh, screwed firmly onto their shoulders, that couldn't you have found an easier way? <laughs> no, that's not how I work. I mean, I got to do everything the hard, the hard, weird way. I mean, like I'm always saying, yeah, yeah, I'm sure my parents are so proud, like to have their daughter on the news for polygamy all the time. Um, and I and I think there was a time I, there really was like a period of about two years where I, I had some self-loathing and embarrassment. Like this is my life now. This is what defines me. Now I just I'm in a place right now of deep gratitude. Like, look at all the cool stuff I get to do. Like I get to go to crazy compounds and isolated places <laughs> and and it really is her jam. I mean, when Lindsay came to Cheyenne, like, maybe not the last time, but one time in the summer, we went on a two-hour trolley ride while we received some half-baked uh, historical information about Cheyenne, ended up at the Old West Museum, and Lindsay was in nerd heaven. It was great. I, that's that's what I'm saying. I I am so lucky because I have such a diversity of people in my life, and um, and I get to do just really exciting, interesting things and meet people. And, and I've grown and people in my life have grown because of it. And it's such a blessing. And and so I think, and and I mean this very sincerely, I hope to be that sort of blessing in the world that this podcast has been for me. And so that's why these critiques and stuff, it's important to address because if the podcast is an affliction on people, you know, that's something I have to I have to come to terms with. All right. Well, let's give people the opportunity uh, to listen and write back with their questions. And if uh, there's enough of them and we want to do a follow-up, we'll, we'll get that on the books. But um, this has been, this has been interesting for me, Lindsay. I realized that like we haven't really had this conversation amongst all of our other conversations about how you are positioning yourself and it's making me recognize just how radically this work has changed you. But I'm certainly one of the people who think that it's been a blessing in my life and uh, anything that takes me away from ignorance and bias and um, cynical dismissal is something that ultimately makes me a better human 
And I think that's the work that Year of Polygamy has done. So I'm grateful that this is the really weird shape your own therapy (laughs) (laughs) well thanks Sarah thanks for being part of it I'm sure I'll have you on again when people feel like they want to hear my process but that's where we're at so thank you everybody for listening if you have comments or feedback or want to weigh in or critique then you're welcome to do it at yourplugging.com Lindsay will compulsively listen and scour herself for uh where she's getting it wrong (laughs) thanks everyone the song you just heard is called my disguise by mikhail douse Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.